Hello and welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. My name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. And today we are talking about a brief history of Wicca abridged. Mm -hmm. Ben, why are we talking about Wicca on a Heathen Podcast? Well, for modern paganism, there really just isn't any way to get away from it. Uh, It has been a strong influence, whether people like to acknowledge it or not, on the development of American heathenry, on heathen traditions in other countries as well. It contributed a great deal of the ritual structure that is still commonly used in Ausatru, habits of doing things like standing in a circle and making signs in the four compass directions and things like that. That all comes out of Wicca. And there's a reason for that. And I'm hoping that by the time we get to the end of this, uh, our coverage of Wicca, you'll understand what people were thinking when the Ossetry movement first started, why they adapted these things. Because it's not something that came out of a vacuum, but how the Wicca was perceived up until even the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So there are three people that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first of them is Charles Leland. Now, Charles Leland was an American humorist, writer, and folklorist. Uh, most of his stuff was very focused on Native American. He wrote a lot about the Native American tribes that were around uh, Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania area. He did some work with the Amish, writing about uh, Pennsylvania Deutsch. He went to Princeton, so well-educated. And um, later in life, he, around 1885, he moved to England where he founded the Gypsy Lore Society of England. Uh, now, while he was there, he made some claims. He uh, discovered a fifth Celtic tongue. Now, this was uh, supposedly a Celtic tongue that was spoken by Irish travelers. Okay. I know they've got a um, jargon of, of their own. I didn't know that it qualified as a fifth Celtic tongue. But it all doesn't. Right. It, but okay. this is what he claimed. All right. And he spent a great deal of time traveling around studying the Roma people. And through this, he met this woman named Madalena. Now, Madalena was an Italian strega. All right. That means she was a witch. Or a sorceress. Or a sorceress. Um, uh, she came from Florence. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Firenze. Yes. And she told him about La Vicia Religione, which I'm going to butcher. There's a lot of foreign pronunciation in here. Just just know I'm going to butcher it. La Vecchia Religione. Thank okay. you, Ben. That focused on the goddess Diana. And uh, he wrote about this in his book, which was called... Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches. And that is a book that's still actually used by a lot of pagans today. I know here recently where we are in uh, the big city of mm-hmm. our, of Little Rock, there was a class on it back, I think, in February. I mean, it's still something that people read and take in as important, even though... Well, Madalena does seemingly did exist. Uh, her name is Madalena Talenti. And she allegedly, years after meeting him, she sent uh, this manuscript uh, that was called the Vangelo. That means the gospel, uh, the evangel, if you like. Whether it's connected with the pre-Christian religions of Europe or not, nobody seems to know. But at the time, that wasn't such an outrageous idea. It certainly seemed to Leland like it could be uh, a survival of the ancient pagan religion of Italy. 
Now, Wild Hutton, who is a modern pagan historian, in his book, Triumph of the Moon, disputes that these accounts were that what he wrote was entirely what she said. Like he thinks that he Leland embellished these accounts. Mm-hmm. That's that's stage mm-hmm. one. So this all happened in 1899. Right. The book contains a lot about uh, Diana, the goddess of the witches, and her daughter Aradia. Now, Aradia is the local pronunciation of Herodias, uh, who appears in the Bible. She was a um, sister of Herod the Great and married. Herod II, and then divorced him and married the next Herod down the line, Herod Antipas. I have been was doing some research on Herodias, and the problem is that everybody in that dynasty was apparently named Herod. So there's a lot of Herods running around, and Herodias was one of the Herods. Uh, she was the mother of Salome, who supposedly was the one who did the famous Dance of the Seven Veils in order to be given the head of John the Baptist. Her second husband, Herod Antipas, uh, was the one who ordered the execution of Jesus. And so definitely in the Bible, she's very much a bad guy or a bad girl, bad woman. But in the version of the Gospel of the Witches, she is the daughter of Diana. I believe Diana also has a son in there named Cain, who is the same one who killed Abel in the Garden of Eden in Christian mythology. So a lot of the mythology of the Gospel of the Witches looks like Christianity kind of inverted. And that makes sense because this is also the late uh, 19th century is when you see kind of that rise in mysticism, Gnosticism. Uh, You see a lot of ceremonial magic stuff where you Mm -hmm. have that very Gnostic and Kabbalistic-influenced right. work. So yeah. you, You've had people since the middle of the uh, 19th century, like a German guy named Bachhofen, speculating um, that early societies had been matriarchies and had recognized uh, the female principle. And Leland wrote, in all other scriptures of all races, it is the male who creates the universe in which sorcery it is the female who is the primitive principle. So you could tie this into speculation about ancient matriarchies and goddess worship, uh, which goes back quite a ways farther yes. than its incarnation in contemporary Wicca. So really nothing else that Leland did really had a huge amount of influence on the modern uh, pagan movement. But As we get into this, you will understand why we took this moment to talk about Leland, because he will come up again and again and again. So the second person we're going to talk about is someone that if you get me a pint and start talking about Wicca, I will can go on epic rants about. So I apologize in advance. And that is Margaret Murray. Oh, Margaret Murray. Oh, boy. Here we go. So. Margaret Murray was an Anglo-Indian Egyptologist, archaeologist, anthropologist, historian, and folklorist. Uh, She was the first woman to be appointed a lecturer in archaeology in the UK. That was at the University College of London. And she was very, she was very influential. Some of the stuff that she did, even though at the time it was very much disputed, was still taken as gospel fact, as we'll, we'll see further down the line. Um, She was born in Calcutta, India, uh, in 1863. Her family was pretty upper middle class, 
And so when she was in India, she studied nursing and social work. And then in 1894, she moved to London to start studying at the University College of London. In 1896, she had built a really good reputation in the archaeology community there, and she was appointed a junior professor. So in 1902 and 1903, she participated in a excavation of an Osirian temple and Saqqara Cemetery um, that was in Egypt. And this was being run by Flinders uh, Petrie. This is another name that you should mm-hmm. remember and pay attention to. Right. He'll come up again. He was at the time the head of the archaeology department at University College of London. And there were, uh, she wrote several papers on this. Was It was a pretty big thing. Like they were able to find, they, it was a pretty decent find. It was a pretty big thing at the time. So it used to be a thing to have mummy unwrapping parties. Mm-hmm. Like that was considered entertainment. And in 1908, she was actually the first woman to lead an unwrapping of a mummy. She unwrapped, you want to try to pronounce that one? Chnumnacht. Uh, yeah, there we go. He was recovered from the tomb of two brothers. Okay. And it was a big deal. It was covered widely kind of around the world. It was a novelty. After that, uh, in the 1910s, she was the de facto editor, editor of the Journal of Ancient Egypt. Um, and that was partially because it was the technical editor was Petrie, but he was off on excavations and or involved in places where he couldn't get back from because of World War I. Now, she was known as the Grand Old Woman of Egyptology. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how I would feel to be called the Grand Old Woman, but here we are. And then, so World War I comes. She serves as a nurse in, in France, and she gets sick uh, shortly after World War I, or towards the end of World War I, and because of this, she moves to Glastonbury to recover from her illness. And I haven't been able to really find what that illness is, but my suspicion is it was the flu, because this is around the time of the Spanish flu epidemic. So Glastonbury Abbey is right there in Glastonbury. And that's a very interesting place because it has uh, allegedly connections to King Arthur. And it's also allegedly where the Holy Grail is or was depending on who you talk to. So she started studying the history of the Glastonbury Abbey. I thought the Holy Grail was in the castle. Uh... Well, that was after. Oh, oh they moved okay. it. All right. Um, and and not the castle anthrax either? No. Oh, okay. And oh, yeah. They, they just had a beacon, which was grail-shaped. Yes, exactly. So she starts studying this because she becomes just fascinated and start studying the relics, and she publishes this paper called Egyptian Elements in the Grail Romance in the Journal of Ancient Egypt. So she's trying to compare, basically she's trying to take the legend of the Holy Grail and pull out what she believes are the Egyptian influences in it, which uh, I could not find that paper either. Right. But it was highly criticized. I can tell you, I did find some criticism of it. And um, apparently her leaps of logic were very highly criticized by a whole bunch of people. So in Britain, they mm-hmm. had a journal called Folklore. And Folklore was, once again, something you should remember. It's something we'll come back up again, Ben. It's still a going concern, by the yes. way. And uh, Folklore is where she published her first kind of draft of the witch cult hypothesis mm-hmm. she had. Right. I've actually got that here, and I would hold it up to the microphone so that you can see it. 
uh, but it's actually on my laptop in this case, so I yeah. can't easily do that. Uh, but it was a paper published in 1917 called Organizations of Witches in Great Britain. And she starts by saying, quote, Witch cult and ritual have not yet, as far as I am aware, been subjected to a searching scientific investigation from the anthropological side. The whole thing has generally been put down to hypnotism, hysteria, and hallucination on the part of the witches, to prejudice and cruelty on the part of the judges. I shall try to prove that the hysteria cum prejudice theory is untenable, and that among the witches we have the remains of a fully organized religious cult, which at one time was spread over Central and Western Europe, and of which traces are found at the present day. And she goes on to describe, uh, she starts with some texts from the early Middle Ages, uh, some penitentials, which were Christian books written to prescribe just what sort of penance mm-hmm. uh, you had to give for each particular sin. You I know, wonder I wonder what the penitentials would say about our singing on this podcast. Probably something like five years on bread and water or something like that. Probably. The, the penitentials tend to take rather a, a grim view of certain things. Well, I know there are a lot of things you had to wear hair shirts for, and that's slightly terrifying. Right. Uh, well, then the 7th century Liber Penitentialis of Theodore, the Archbishop of Canterbury, what she publishes doesn't tell you what the actual penance is, but it mentions that you'll get penance for sacrifice to devils, eating and drinking in the heathen temple, and apparently it's a lesser penalty if you're ignorant and a greater penalty if you do it after you've been told by the priest that you're not supposed to, and then an even greater penance if you seriously mean it. Oh, going about as a stag or a bull, uh, dressing up in animal costumes and skins at the Calends of January, which I think is, when is the, I can't remember the Roman calendar very well, but if you dress up as a stag or a bull in January, uh, you get in trouble apparently because, quote, this is devilish. So good to know that you shouldn't be a Catholic and also the Chicago Bulls mascot. Evidently not. I'm not sure whether you're allowed to be the Philly fanatic because that's not a stag or a bull. But yeah, definitely no dressing up as a Chicago Bull or or a Milwaukee Buck. Or probably the Duke Blue Devils. Yeah, you're probably right there. So this is kind of the first step she takes in this witch cult of Western Europe hypothesis that she puts forward. Mm -hmm. This thing, like I said, I can go on and Mm -hmm. on in hours, but I did write things down so that Mm -hmm. I wouldn't because it it irritates me. Part of the little critique I'll offer right now is she does go on and cite in her initial paper penitentials and laws and things like that all through the Middle Ages going up to the 15th century. Part of the problem is since they're all coming from church works and writers for the church were not going out and actually doing anthropological research, you know, your you know, Theodore, the Archbishop of Canterbury, would not have been going around to every old sacred grove watching what the witches did and then writing down, you're not allowed to do this. What a lot of those penitentials are doing is copying from each other. Uh, In particular, there was a church council in Western Europe. I think it was the Council of Arles in Arles, A-R-L-E-S, Arles, in uh, the year 400 and don't care, that had outlawed a lot of these practices. And a lot of the later texts basically copy uh, from the Council of Arles. And yet, as humans, mm-hmm. this 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 makes sense to me. 
because if you think about it, so I think back to my childhood, you know, I was 12, 13, 14 years old during the height of the satanic panic. I grew up near Mm -hmm. West Memphis. And I think about how this, you know, it was spread through churches. Right. It was these VHS devils, uh, hell's bells. That's what it was called. Mm -hmm. Or this, that, and the other. And, you know, somebody would go visit their sister in Cersei and go to church and come back with the story. And it propagated this idea that there were these satanic sacrifices and they were looking for blue-eyed, blonde-haired children, which was me as a child. (laughs) And all of this that they talk about, very much, that's how it spread even then. Yeah. There may be just a few sources. I seem to recall that Mike Warnke was one of them. This Christian stand-up comedian, which strikes me as kind of inherently contradictory, but no matter. But he'd claimed in the 70s to be a high priest of Satan. And then, of course, it turned his life around and given his soul to Jesus and et cetera, et cetera, and made this part of his act. So you have a few sources like that that are, you know, mostly made up. I think Warnke was revealed to have been pretty much making up the whole thing. And the thing is, is they cover is the is that people talk about people don't talk Mm -hmm. about when they're debunked. They talk about when these sensational things are happening. And so you get this uh, picture that builds up of what witchcraft is supposed to look like that may bear only the foggiest resemblance to the truth, but it gets copied from one author to the next and and you know grows in the telling. And possibly embellished. I remember a book when I was a kid, back in my misspent Methodist youth, my mom got this book called Cults, World Religions, and You. My mother had that too. Oh, okay. I read that book like four times. I was so because I was a weird kid who was mm. fascinated by cults. But yeah. Right. And there is actually something in there on witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And what that book is actually describing is kind of a strange mashup of Wicca and Satanism of the Anton LaVey variety and a bunch of stuff that I think just got pulled out of somebody's posterior, as it were, that bears no resemblance to actual Wicca, at least as far as I've been able to find out. But things like this just grow in the telling and they get passed from person to person And this was going on in the early Middle Ages as well. If you wanted to know what witches did, God forbid you go out and ask them. If there were even witches, because you have so many examples of it where, you know, even contemporaries are saying this was hysteria. This was Mm -hmm. women who had money or land who were being accused of being witches. So then all of a sudden the church gets this. That it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a lot of even contemporary critics saying, You know, so even if there were witches, which there may or may not have been, we don't know. But, you know, with this, she starts putting forth and she writes several papers, but eventually it all culminates in a book called The Witch Witch Cult of Western Europe. And going to kind of go over some of the high points here from the book. You know, she put forward that until the 17th century, there was a religion much older than Christianity, which all over Western Europe had supporters, both in ordinary people and the ruling class. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no evidence for that. Central to the worship stood a horned god with two faces, known to the Romans as Janus or Dianus. And this is also similar to Diana's cult that was described in the Golden Bough. Can I mention, talk a little bit about the Golden Bough? Please. Okay. The Golden Bough was written by a Scottish anthropologist named Sir James George Fraser. 
and he'd started just writing a short article uh, to explain a particular Roman priesthood, the priesthood at Nemi, uh, where the priest was always, I think, a criminal, and the priest could stay the priest only as long as he could keep somebody else from killing him. So being the priest at Nemi was not a job with really great job security prospects. And he started writing a short article to explain that, and it turned into 12 volumes as these things happen. Yeah, um, I was going to write a very short outline for this, and it turned into six pages. So right, I'm right. With you. And Fraser's first edition was two volumes. It ended up going all the way to 12. And it was ultimately an anthropological theory of religion, and it pointed to an enormous number of similarities among all of the religions that Fraser knew about. So, for example, uh, he believed that religion had started as magic, basically as an attempt by humans to control unseen powers that they couldn't see, and it developed out of there. And religions were fundamentally fertility cults, and they revolved around the figure of a sacred king uh, who gave fertility to the land and then died and then was reborn. So you have the dying and then resurrecting uh, God King. And Murray talked about this in mm -hmm. her theory where um, the horn God had a representative on earth, a chosen human being. And just a few of the people she put forward that were represented, uh, William Rufus, Thomas Beckett, mm -hmm. Joan of Arc. And Gilles de Rye. Yeah. Right. William Rufus was a not particularly good king of England. Thomas Becket was killed by the king of England, who said, well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest. Uh, Gilles de Rye was an outlaw and bandit who did horrible things to children. Uh, but they all died in a rather public way. And Murray interprets this as being a ritual sacrifice uh, to ensure the renewal of the earth. So... Yeah, a human who incarnates the the horned god must be sacrificed in order to restore uh, fertility to the land. And this ties in with the horned god being the embodiment of the year, right. uh, who's born, what, every year at the winter solstice and then dies every year at the harvest. To be reborn to again. Be, to be reborn again. This image of the dying and living god uh, is certainly present in Murray, and I suspect that before that, it comes from the Golden Bough, which has mostly been debunked as a serious text on the anthropology of religion, but the imagery was incredibly influential in, uh, in art, in philosophy, mm -hmm. and certainly in folklore, and certainly down to the present day. Any listeners that are familiar with Wicca uh, we'll probably recognize the whole cycle of the horn god and the goddess who is what his lover, his mother, his lover, and then she, it's the maiden mother crone, right? What his mother, his lover, and what does she kill him? And his no, um, he just dies. Okay, unless you also f we'll get there. Okay, we'll get there. Okay, so um, 
the village, and she talked about the village witches meetings, they were always led by a horned god. And, you know, when the Christians were watching this, they thought it was devil worship. But in fact, they were celebrating uh, the pre-Christian god Dianus, mm-hmm. which is... Right. That might be the only plausible thing I would believe out of here is the right. Christians saw something and assumed it was devil worship. Right. Because that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty normal. In heathenry, you do get, this pops up in uh, Inglinga Saga, uh, part of the Heimskringla. Uh, more than one ancient king of the Swedes couldn't bring about a good harvest, so the people ended up killing him to try to bring about better harvests. You know, there's this guy that claims to be the Jarl of Arkansas. What? Yes, uh, he contacted me. Okay. And my question is, you know, as so many of you know, we're very dependent on agriculture here. And there's a problem with our major buyer of soybeans and rice not buying our stuff anymore. And so the farmers are having problems and we had a flood. So I just want to know, can we sacrifice him to bring back the luck of the land? I think it would be uh, definitely worth a shot. All righty. You know, what do we have to lose? Nothing. Okay. Nothing. All right. This guy's also a screaming racist. So. Okay. So this is the one that gets me and really gets me is she believed that the indigenous people of Europe were small in stature and were driven out of their land by each new invasion. And they were the ones entrusted with the old religion. And this is why we have stories of fairies, gnomes, and other small people. Wait, were they driven out of their land because of... What, invaders were after their lucky charms or something? Yeah, pretty much. Ah. And now I know where she got that. A book that was important to me at one time uh, was this book that I picked up in a uh, bookstore in Sarajevo uh, just a couple of years before Sarajevo went to hell, before the wars that blew up Yugoslavia. And I picked up this copy in a used bookstore of a book called The Mist of Avalon uh, by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Don't we know somebody who's written some of those books? Yeah, yeah. That led to a whole series, uh, some of whom which have been written by uh, Diana Paxson, uh, who collaborated with Marion Zimmer Bradley on a number of projects. And now I realize where she got that, because in uh, The Mist of Avalon, you've got... The tribes are the, you know, the Celtic peoples of Britain, and you have the Romans, of course, and then at the end you have the Anglo-Saxons, the, you know, bad guys telling riddles and swigging mead and all that. So, heathens. Right. Yeah. But you also have, she keeps referring to the little people, which are apparently these very short people with magic about them who hunt with uh, stone-tipped spears and things like that. And Morgan Le Fay has some bond with them, if memory serves. And that, that comes into what Murray wrote in her stuff that, you know, the, the witches, the people who practice the old religion were the pupils of these, uh, small people. And, uh, the small people were willing to pass this knowledge to ordinary people who sought them out because they mm-hmm. were very shy. Uh-huh. So she put forward that local covens consisted of 13 members. You got 12 ordinary people and one leader. And they were supposed to have weekly meetings called SBOTs, which is another one of those mm-hmm. words. Now, uh, generally in modern paganism, that's used to refer to meetings at the full and new moon. Right. And then they would have larger uh, Sabbaths, which is, of course, what uh, many Wiccans call their Wheel of the Year holidays. Right. 
there was very strict discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Ben. You should be very grateful to, for this because uh, do you know what the punishment was for missing a meeting? What death? Hey, I'm not the one who uh, <laughs> missed last week. I know. Yeah, but, I mean, last week almost nobody showed up. I mean, I we have to execute most of our kindred if I know uh, if if we enforce that. And then the organization structure was so amazing that Christianity had to wait until the Reformation to uh, get control on the population. And that's when you had the greater witch uh, persecutions. So she puts out this book, right? And, oh, bless her heart. Um, It's peer-reviewed. Right. And even at the time, the people who were influential academics in European history were like, this girl's crazy. Mm-hmm. And the peer review was bad, which sounds a lot like what I've been reading about peer review journals lately anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the peers would still have been, I think, Fraser's influence, at least in the field of anthropology, was starting to fade uh, in part because round about 1900 is when you first get people like Bronislav Malinowski, who actually one of the first anthropologists in the modern sense who actually went and lived among exotic people um, and tried to study them directly as opposed to, you know, ruling them and taking their stuff. And he lived on the Trobriand Islands. And according to my old college anthropology professor, he cursed them every night under his breath for three years. Uh, But he ended up writing this enormous and very influential book about the Trobrianders and their beliefs. And a lot of his work simply didn't fit Fraser's model, that they weren't celebrating a dying and living god of vegetation who is the son and then the lover of the great mother goddess. Um, What the Trobrianders were doing simply didn't have anything to do with that. Now, one thing I want to bring up here Mm -hmm. when it comes to this is the influence I think that this has in especially Ossetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you'll hear that can be a kind of divide between more neo-paganish true and more kind of like hardcore recons is this idea that there was some sort of monolithic true culture or heathen culture. And the fact is that if you go you know, to any place, time, it's very different. It's very regional, very mm-hmm. complex. And... This idea, though, that there was some sort of monolithic belief and worship and everyone did everything the exactly same way. The ancient ways of our northern European ancestors is usually the way they put it. Yeah, is quite frankly, bull hockey. Mm -hmm. And I I can't draw a direct line here, Mm -hmm. but I just feel like that was a very heavy influence. Um, Part of that is, so in 1929... Uh, Margaret Murray was invited to provide the entry for witchcraft for the 14th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, Ben, do you want to explain what an encyclopedia is to our listeners under 35? Um, It's a whole bunch of books, uh, starting with A and going on towards Z. Uh, They provide authoritative articles on a wide range of topics. And the Encyclopedia Britannica is probably the most respected in the English-speaking world. So, yeah, this was like... This was like getting to write an article on Wikipedia if Wikipedia was so edit-locked that only a select elite could actually write it. 
Okay. Does that help for the under 35 Yeah, I crowd? think that'll help. Okay. Um, so the- Oh, and you, you couldn't get it on your phones. You had to buy it in this big series of these things we used to have back in the old days called books. And sometimes you would have, when, I, when we bought it, mm-hmm. we bought the 1989 says, version. Um, oh, you had you had the Britannica? Mm-hmm. My parents only bought me World Book. We had the 89 because my grandfather got us a subscription. Oh. And so you got two books a month until you got the whole thing. So you started with A and you just right, went your way right, through. Right. So I could so you know that school year, that last half of the school year I could really only do projects on like A through H or so. Yeah, if the teacher assigned a report on zebras, you were pretty much We'd have to go to the library. Oh. Okay. Libraries had these too. Oh. And they usually had the most up to date because you usually bought one and just kept it forever. I think my parents just got rid of that eighty nine encyclopedia. Yeah, I think my folks still have the seventy three World Book Encyclopedia. So that article that she wrote in nineteen twenty nine stayed in there for forty years. So it was not removed until nineteen sixty nine. Now, why does nineteen sixty nine? Why is that a why is that a kind of interesting and important time period, Ben? Well, that's the year I was born. That too. Okay. Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of that's about the time that you see things like the Viking Brotherhood, mm-hmm. the Odinist Fellowship. That's about the time that Wicca starts making inroads in America. Uh, I think I mentioned in one of our earlier shows that there was a, a Time Magazine article in 1972 about alternative religions, including mm-hmm. witchcraft and Satanism. And this was important. You know, we had this. You know, witchcraft, Satanism, the Time magazine. And this is around the time that uh, Raymond Buckland's first books were published, 1970, Llewellyn. And the encyclopedias were an authoritative source. Right. And you probably don't really have many alternatives to them if you're just studying on your own and you don't have access to a pretty major research library. And, And I wouldn't say most universities probably didn't have one at that point in time. Especially not ones in Wichita Falls, Texas. Right. Yeah. Midwestern University, if Boy McNallan wants to look up something about the Norse gods or witchcraft or anything like that, the encyclopedia is probably pretty much the only option he's got. Um, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have a big research-based collection on that stuff. And... I mean, even then, there wasn't an awful lot of information that was out there. Vikings, I don't think, were chic uh, the way that they later become. There probably were, because you did see that kind of boom in publishing about books about Vikings in the post-World War II era, um, because they were very popular for young men to give them Mm -hmm. um, in English-speaking countries. So uh, there's a chance, but you wouldn't have highly academic works like you do. You might have some edits, copies of the Eddas and Sagas, and mm-hmm. maybe if you were lucky, some of the uh, Victorian Romantic era research. Right. But you still would probably have a hard time, you know, dipping into, you know, the the uh, papers getting published in journals. Whereas today, if you want to know something about heathenry, it's very easy, you know, to go to something like academia.edu and download you know, 10 different peer-reviewed and quite possibly contradictory papers on the subject. Yes. And then argue about them with your friends online, because that's what we do. Exactly. So one more point I want to bring up about Margaret Murray. She was also president for quite a while of the Folklore Society. Folklore Society is once again going to come up again, because it becomes very influential on our next subject, Mm -hmm. which is Gerald Gardner. Now, I want to kind of start out from the beginning here. Um, a majority of my sources 
for this particular thing are my paper that I wrote on Gerald Gardner and his influence and basically debunking some myths about Gerald Gardner, which had a ton of stuff. But also Philip Heselton's Witch Father was written in 2011 is probably the most comprehensive biography of Gerald Gardner, Mm -hmm. as well as Ronald Hutton's Triumph of the Moon, which has some great uh, research into it, into him as well. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, Witch Father, but I can recommend Triumph of the Moon as very, very good. I was able to find a used copy of Witch Father for like three bucks. It was great. Mm. I, I, I do love used books. Sweet. So, um, Gerald Gardner was born in 1884. He was um, Blundelsland, Lancashire. I can't, oh my God, I can't talk. It looks like Blundelsands in Lancashire. I think Lancashire. It, I think it, yeah, Lancashire. Lancashire, yeah. I just don't know why my brain went there. So that was a wealthy suburb of Liverpool, which I do know how to say. Mm-hmm. Came from a very upper class family. His family, in fact, owned the oldest private company in the timber trade within the British Empire. Mm-hmm. His dad had gone to New York to try to secure some contracts in America, and that's where he met his mother. So uh, Gardner's mother was actually American. He had four older brothers. And he was primarily, though, raised by his nanny, whose name was Josephine Calm, as they called her, McCombie. All right. And um, he was a sickly kid. He had very, very severe asthma. And as a result, his nanny convinced his parents to pay to send her and him to go live in all these warmer places. Nice work if you can get it. Because they went down to Nice in mm -hmm. France and then the uh, Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. Man, I should definitely have coughed a little more when I was a kid. Um, and then Akara, which is now Ghana. Right. And then finally, they ended up in Funchal, which is the capital of the autonomous region of Madeira. Right. And that is a Portuguese territory, best I can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, best I understand, it's kind of like Guam for us in America. Right. So, and that's an that's a... A series of islands that's right there um, in the North Atlantic, southwest of Portugal. And his nanny was kind of man crazy. And so he spent a lot of time alone in his hotel rooms. As a result, he was never ed- educated, never went to school, mm-hmm. um, actually taught himself how to read using magazines that he were found in his hotel rooms. And one of the first books he ever read was There Is No Death, which was written by uh, Florence Marriott. Uh, this was... A very typical book of that kind of late uh, 19th century, all about spiritualism. And this kind of gave him, I would say this was probably his really one of his primary religious influences of his early life. He really started believing in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spiritualism was very big at the time. This is when you have mediums, you know, doing uh, table wrapping and seances and, you know, contacting the dead from beyond the veil. And that's what Marriott was into. She was also a writer of uh, rather lurid romances, Um, you know, with a lot of, I guess, about as much explicit sex as you could get away with in the 1890s, which isn't saying very much. Uh, Um, But she was also an actress uh, as well, so a very well-known figure. Hey, Ben, what do you call a gnome psychic who escapes from jail? A small medium at large. (laughs) They tell an old joke in the Ozarks about a a medium who comes to hold a seance. And everybody is sitting around the table and they're trying to find out um, 
what this girl has been doing. And the um, medium is saying, you know, was Sally in this room? And there's a, a rap. And then this says, was Sally in here with a man? And there's a rap. And then the medium says, and what was Sally doing? And the table flips over and the drawers fall open. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I didn't tell that very well, but, but that's a yeah. story you hear up in the Ozarks. So they were in um, Madeira for about nine years. Right. And while they were there, um, Calm met this guy named David Elkington, who owned a tea plantation in the British colony of Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. I thought Ceylon was what Columbus kept saying. Ceylon, 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 and on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, Calm and Gerald then moved to there to live on Ladbrook Estate. Oh, sounds lovely. Which was the tea plantation. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was in around 1900. Uh, 1901, they moved to Candy, which mm -hmm. uh, was probably not a great place for a kid. Okay. He, he would probably want too much candy. Oh, okay. I want candy. The scary yeah. thing is we thought of the same thing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you've been in the same country for 15 years. Uh -huh. Now, the bungalow neighboring his had just been recently vacated by Aleister Crowley and Charles Henry Allen Bennett. Hmm. So Wait, the Aleister Crowley? The Aleister Crowley. Mr. Crowley, what went wrong in your head? Hey, come on, it's Ozzy. Yeah, I know. Mr. Crowley, make you talk to the dead. Right. So Crowley was, um, so to me, this is, this is Lauren's guesswork here. This is not, mm -hmm. this is not anything I could, I can back up. But Lauren, you know, I would think that if I moved into a neighborhood where Alistair Crowley just moved out of, he'd probably been invited to stay there and people, generally seemed to like Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. There was probably a lot of people talking about this spiritualism and all this stuff that Gardner already had this interest in from reading the books that he read. Mm -hmm. So this was probably, like, in all seriousness, this was probably, like, really cool for him. He's a teenager. He's, like, having the time of his life. I and would. It, right. And here's this guy who is not only into all sorts of, uh, shall we say, interesting occultic kind of things, but... Um, is also one of the things that's not that well known about Crowley is that he was one of the leading uh, mountaineers of the mm -hmm. time. I think, I can't remember if he made an attempt on Everest or if it was somewhere else in the Himalayas, but he had, obviously he didn't get quite to the top of Everest, but he had a number of major accomplishments in mountaineering at the time. He, uh, so Joe Gardner trains as a creeper, so he's basically a trainee planter on this tea plantation. Okay. I've known some gardenerians that were creepers. And I creep. Yeah. Just planting tea on the down low. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and uh, because he was doing this, he got to know a lot of the Singlinese natives and really became interested in their Buddhist beliefs. Um, so his parents and his younger bro and his brothers visited, the younger of his older brothers visited in 1904. And his father was like, hey, I'm going to buy this rubber plantation, the Atlanta estate. And why don't you come and manage it for me? And Gardner's like, cool. I like, I like plants. Mm -hmm. I like managing things. 
I don't have to be bossed around by anybody. Right. Sold. All right. So he's basically making a career bouncing around the British Empire. Yeah. Managing things. Exactly. Okay. Um, and that gave him a lot of leisure time, being a manager of this kind of plantation. And then while he was there, he also joined the Ceylon Planters Rifle Corps, which was a militia that uh, composed of European and tea, European tea and rubber planters intent on protecting their interest from foreign aggression or domestic insurrection. Oh, yes. Can't possibly allow anything to interfere with the tea, you know. Yes. Yes. We don't send plenty of tea back to Britain. Uh, Vic- Queen Victoria herself might get a little bit unnerved. This is the one, I think this one would have been after Victoria. Oh. 1907. Oh, yes. King Edward. King Edward. Yes, yes. of course. Uh, if we have any British listeners, I apologize for the accent. Uh, I know. I know. I know. It's So, uh, 1907, he goes back to um, England mm-hmm. uh, due to some family issues, and he meets, meets a man named uh, Ted Surgenson. Uh, Ted Sargentson was special. Mm-hmm. He believed there were fairies living in his garden. But we need to ask, uh, did they wear boots? I'm not. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, we'd already brought up Ozzy by singing oh, Mr. Okay. Crowley. And there there's this go. old Black Sabbath song. Yeah. Fairies wear boots and you gotta believe it. Yes. I saw it. I saw it with my two eyes. So, uh, apologies again for anybody who likes classic heavy metal. I'm sorry for what I just did. So, um, so I got a great quote here from Ted. Mm -hmm. I can often feel they're there and sometimes I've seen them. Mm. Even though he would admit sometimes that he might also be crazy. So I I have to appreciate a self-aware crazy person. Well, smoking and tripping was all that he did. Yeah. Um, so while Gardner was there, he claimed it discovered some fascinating family rumors, um, of course, because and this then this stuff is like right out of some like princess hot dog moon meme mm-hmm. star flower stuff. Right. Um, his grandfather, Joseph, had been a practicing witch. And then his Scottish ancestor, Gristle Gardner, had been burned as a witch. Oh. In Newburgh mm-hmm. in 1610. Ah. So, uh, yeah, he, he now he's, mm-hmm. he is, you know. All right. What were they burning besides witches? More witches! <laughs> um, so then he, so while he was back in uh, Britain, right before he left to go back gallivanting around the world, he was initiated as an apprentice Freemason into the Sphinx Lodge. Number 107, which was affiliated with the Irish Grain Lodge. So he's now a Freemason. Mm-hmm. This will come back later. Wait, so he was a Mason and he'd met Ted Surgenson to, uh, who was into fairies? Uh-huh. Does this make him fairy Mason? Oh, oh that was horrible. Thank you, folks. I'll be here all week. That was horrible. Um, Tip your server. So um, after he gets initiated into Masonry, he moves to Borneo. Because that's where I'm going to go after I'm initiated into masonry. Well, of course. Um, and he studies the Dayak and the Dusan people, um, who are two of the native tribes in that area, and actually attended some Dusan seances and healing rituals. So right. he was really interested in these cultures. He went and studied them. Right. 
Yeah, so he's been to Sri Lanka or Ceylon, mm -hmm. now Malaysia. He's certainly developing a lot of firsthand knowledge of cultures at the time. So 1910, he's in Malaysia, and this is, oh, Gerald Gardner. So he meets this man named Cornwall. Can't find a first name for this guy, but just a man named Cornwall. Um, and Cornwall is a Muslim. Okay. So Cornwall, like, convinces him to take the Shahada. Okay. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's You're now the, a Muslim. Yeah, that's... Well, I'm not because I didn't say it with conviction. You have to say uh, okay. it with true conviction at least once in your life uh, to be considered a Muslim. So, so I, yeah, actually, just pronouncing the syllables doesn't make you yeah. a Muslim. I'm, you know, you know, we're, I'm still, still heathen. Or so they want you to believe. So he does this though to gain the trust of the locals, right? And he never actually became a practicing Muslim though. Mm -hmm. But um, Cornwall was a weird guy. Mm -hmm. Like, he was super, he was Muslim, and he was very, very, like, considered himself very devout. Mm -hmm. But he also was, like, super into spiritualism and magic and the local kind of indigenous spiritual beliefs. And I'm just reminded, I have a, a friend of mine uh, who was uh, born and raised in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the Ivory Coast, and his family's Muslim. And I asked him once about, you know, the religion he was raised in. And yeah, everybody, according to him, you know, everybody that he knew was Muslim and, you know, very devout and believed the Quran and all of that. And yet, if they actually needed something, they would pop on over to a traditional healer mm -hmm. or someone who does something like that. Uh, even though in Orthodox Islam, that would be frowned on, you know, there's still a great deal of accommodation between Islam and older traditions when you actually get down on the ground. And that's actually true for Christianity as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's plenty of people in the Appalachians and the Ozarks who um, would be absolutely scandalized if you called them witches because, you know, they are good and devout members of the local Baptist church. They're not witches, they're yarbs. There's, yeah, there are certain things. In the thing, Ozarks. Yeah, there are certain yarbs. things they know how to do. They can treat with yarbs, that's herbs in the local pronunciation, or they know how to stop bleeding, or there's just, there's stuff they know. Like uh, in the sagas, there's a woman who's just referred to as a woman who knows a thing or two. That, that, that's right. a goal. That's a life goal there for me. To be a woman who knows, knows a, a thing, thing or two. two. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that in Malaysia, you would have, you know, Gardner taking the profession of Muslim faith, even if he didn't mean it, and yet finding that there's still maybe animist or other non-Muslim practices that are continuing on in uh symbiosis with uh, with Islam. That's not that uncommon. No. Um, so he became really obsessed with this knife called a kris. Mm -hmm. um, it's a ritual knife that was used uh, by the indigenous people there for both magical and religious uses. And he even became so like engrossed with this that he later is going to write a book on it. So 1927, his father develops dementia. So he comes back to the UK. Mm -hmm. And while he's there, he really kind of gets into more into spiritualism and mediumship. 
Went to a seance in July of 1927 and met his wife. Was she still alive? Yes. Okay, he didn't meet her, like, after she was dead and she was still a uh, actual no. person. They didn't communicate by table wrapping? No. No, okay. she's a real person. She was related to his sister-in-law. Ah. And then her name was Dorothea Frances Rosedale, or also known as Donna. And uh, he proposed the 29th of July, a day after he met her. And they got married the 16th of August, 1927, which, oddly enough, is my parents' anniversary in 1972. Hmm. Or 75. All right. I don't remember. It's my parents' anniversary. It's the April 16th. It's also the day Elvis died. Oh. Which, you know, it's sad. Mm-hmm. So... Would we have a seance to uh, contact him, see how he's doing? If he's dead. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's the day when he supposedly died. Yes. Okay. But you think he might be really living somewhere, laughing it up with Jimmy Hoffa? Um, and Amelia Earhart? Yeah. Okay. Or he's in a nursing home in Louisiana because he switched places with someone and that guy died. Oh, right. And that's oh. the plot to the movie Bubba Hotep. Which everybody should go see. That's it's a pretty great. good one. So they got married in St. Jude's Church in Kensington. And the reason the wedding was so rushed is because um, after a very brief honeymoon, they went back to Malaysia to uh, Johor Bahru. And he joined the Johor Royal Masonic Lodge, which is number 3946, mm-hmm. uh, when they moved back there. Although, and that was in 1928. By 1931, um, he had quit the temple. Mm-hmm. Retired, as he said. Okay. I hope you never encountered the Masonic Santeria Druids. Uh, Have you never heard of the Masonic Santeria Druids? No, Ben, I've not. They cement live chickens to trees. Oh, wow. So thank you um, very much, folks. Tip your server. I'll be here all week. He he really got into studying anthropology of the melee at this point and their magical practices. Um, really, totally bought in. Like he bought in that it was all true and all real. Mm-hmm. He believed in magic, and his huge his focus was folk magic and weapons, which sounds like every redneck pagan I know. Mm-hmm. My sacred gun. <laughs> Sorry. Arkansas. Yeah. And so. No, you cannot use your deer <laughs> rifle as an athami. <laughs> so, uh, 32, he goes back to the UK. And he joins an excavation in Palestine. Right. Of the Tal al-Ajul Temple, I think. L- mm-hmm. Led by Sir Flinders Petrie, whom we have mentioned. Because who studied with Petri? Oh, that's right, Margaret. Margaret Murray. And then, so when he gets back, he is now getting involved with King's College in London, goes to several lectures on prehistory and proto-history, and specifically two lectures that describe the cult of the mother goddess. Here we go. Here we go. All right. And then in 36, he published his very first book. On the crease? Yes. The crease and other Malay weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the pieces are coming into place. He's into the mother goddess. He really likes knives. Yeah, exactly. And one other piece that's about to fall into place is that circa 1936, he gets into nudism. Yes. Um, he, uh, is developing asthma again. Mm-hmm. And a friend recommends to him that he should become a nudist. So he, um, 
because of this, he becomes a nudist, joins a nudist community. He meets uh, Dion uh, Bingham, who is a member, senior member of the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, mm-hmm. who propounded a contemporary pagan religion known as Dionysianism. Yeah, the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry is this group at the time that's promoting a kind of back-to-nature lifestyle. They're into woodcraft. Uh, they're into traditional crafts. They're into camping out. Um, their founder uh, does things on his estate, which has one of the most unfortunate names in the history of Western religion, because he's got this estate that's called Sandy Balls. And the punchlines just write themselves, don't they? I don't think I even have to say anything. I worked in an outdoor theater when I was a a teenager, and we had two actors there who were Mm -hmm. equity actors, so they couldn't use their real names. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the stage was just a giant sandbox. Right. Um, So their names they used were Sandy and Harry Balzac. All right, then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, So anyway, the Woodcraft Chivalry, that movement had been... A, an inspiration for the Boy Scouts, uh, but Robert Baden-Powell took the Scouts, at least at the time, in a more military direction. The idea was, you know, to make people who would become good soldiers for the emp- the British Empire, and a lot of the nature-type stuff and, you know, dancing around bonfires and things like that didn't make it into the Scouts itself. Uh, but the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry was still continuing that. And there was, not everybody was on board with this, but there was a sort of proto-pagan uh, movement growing uh, within uh, the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry. Also in 1936, he goes on yet another Palestinian, British Palestine temple excavation with Petrie. And um, one of the things that he really becomes interested in this excavation is these statues that are found both to a male Judeo-Christian deity and also a pagan goddess, um, Ashtoreth. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Let's, let's, let's talk about the pieces here for a minute, Ben. You All have right. a, a god and a goddess. Right. You have a mother goddess. Right. You have ritual weapons. Mm-hmm. And you have nudity. Yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, the pieces are definitely starting to come together. So, um, and then uh, he's also elected to the Fellowship of Royal Anthropological Institute. So, we're going to stop there. All right. And we will pick up next week talking about his initial, basically, creation of Wicca and some of the other influences. So... Just want to remind you guys, if you want to support us, um, we have a Patreon. You can visit it. We get sneak peeks, special gifts, access to our exclusive Heathen History Facebook group. I sent stickers out to all our Patreons a couple of weeks ago. Very nice. Um, just really a lot of fun. And you can find that at patreon.com forward slash Heathen History. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Heathen History or Facebook at facebook.com slash Heathen History for updates. As always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. And our theme music is Happy Viking by Roller Music. And our show is edited, and all of the bloopers that you don't actually hear get taken out uh, by Hands on Keyboard. Uh, check who, her out on Fiverr if you ever need editing. She's great. And she makes us sound good. And that's she does. No, that's no easy task. No. So uh, for the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.